Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1044. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've come to verse 21 this morning. This is an important section that we're in in the Gospel of Matthew, as evidenced by the passage that we studied together last week, and by what we'll begin looking at uh, this week. And we will not get through the whole passage today. This is a several-week sermon. So uh, don't know how many yet. Time will tell. We'll see. All right? But it is a crucial and important passage that is before us, and it builds off of what we studied last week. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, and this is what the Word of God says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. James Montgomery Boyce stated that there is a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church. And that defect is a lack of true discipleship. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. To be a true disciple means that you forsake everything in your life to follow Christ. There is much talk about Christ and much activity surrounding Christ, but we would have to agree this morning that there's very little true following of Christ. And because there's very little true following of Christ, that means that there's very little true Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German churchman of the Nazi era, 
who eventually suffered martyrdom for his opposition to Hitler and his policies, called this lack of true discipleship cheap grace. His observation of the Lutheran church in Germany during his day was that the profession of faith was present and good works were done, but most of the people had never simply been born again through Jesus Christ. They were taught grace, but it was grace without conversion. It was grace without life change. And in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is absolution without personal confession. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross. It is grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he went on in this book to say that the contrast is between cheap grace and costly grace. And this is what he said about costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible defines discipleship with a two-word phrase, follow me. And this phrase is used 19 times in the Gospels. There are numerous references in which one person or another is said to have followed Christ. True discipleship, friends, is not a second step in Christianity, as if the first step, one becomes a believer in Jesus, and then later on, if they choose and desire, they follow Jesus. From beginning to end, discipleship is what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is what it means to be a Christian. Discipleship is what it means to know and serve and worship and love Jesus Christ. It's not something that you add on to your decision for Christ. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. The great devotional writer Oswald Chambers said this about discipleship. He said, discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a vast difference between devotion to a person and devotion to principles or to a cause. 
Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. To be a disciple is to be a devoted bondservant motivated by love for the Lord Jesus. And he summarizes and says, Many of us who call ourselves Christians are not truly devoted to Jesus Christ. The theologian and author A.W. Pink said, Never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. And never was there such a small percentage of real Christians. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God is upon them. The context of the passage of Scripture that is before us this morning gives us the heart of true Christian discipleship. It is contrary to the self-centered false gospels that are so popular in contemporary Christianity today. The passage before us this morning leaves no room for the gospel of Gideon in which God is viewed as a genie in a bottle who jumps to provide our every whim and our every wish and our every desire. The passage before us this morning closes the door to the gospel of health and wealth, which asserts that if a believer is not healthy, and if a believer is not prosperous, they have not simply exercised their divine rights, or they don't have enough faith to claim the blessings that are already theirs. The passage before us this morning undermines the gospel of self-esteem because this passage requires humility. This passage demands repentance. This passage demands brokenness. We hear all the time about what one gets who lives by the principles of God's word. But Jesus says over and over what one must give to become a true disciple. The New Testament in Jesus himself teaches that there must be a cross before there can be a crown. That there must be suffering before glory. That there must be sacrifice before reward. That the heart of Christian discipleship is giving before gaining. It's losing before winning. And I would submit to you this morning that the passage before us for our consideration is not the first time that Jesus has taught what it means to be one of his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10 verses 37 to 39 Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, 
Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 27, Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And when Jesus speaks of hating your family members and even hating yourself, he's speaking of a lesser love. He is calling for a devotion and a discipleship to him that is greater than any other devotion in a person's life. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, he summarized what it means to be a disciple of his by stating, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And do you hear over and over, friends, the language from Jesus himself? You must do this. You cannot be this unless you follow me. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus teaches us clearly and powerfully what it means to be one of his true disciples. And so I have one major point to give you this morning that sets the foundation for the rest of the passage. And I want you to see in verses 21 to 23, the path of discipleship. In verse 21, Matthew gives us the prophecy of Jesus. And he writes, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The very first phrase in verse 21, from that time, is a transition phrase. It is a phrase that Matthew uses throughout his gospel. For instance, in chapter 4 and verse 17, he used this phrase to mark the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to Israel, after his baptism and his temptation. And now in this chapter, he uses it to mark the beginning of Jesus' private ministry to his disciples. This phrase, from that time, emphasizes that from now to his arrest and his crucifixion, the theme of Jesus' ministry to his disciples would be their preparation for his execution. But you'll notice in the text that Matthew shows us clearly in this transition from public ministry to private ministry that even though the disciples had spent all of this time with Jesus, they still did not fully grasp what awaited him. And so Matthew says in verse 21 that Jesus, 
began to show them what lied before him. This is a fascinating verse. It comes immediately on the heels of Peter's powerful confession in verse 16, where he looked at Christ and declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And not only that, this verse comes on the heels of Jesus' charge to his disciples in verse number 20, that they tell no one that he was the Christ, that they keep secret his reason for coming to earth. And it all makes sense here in verse number 21 because the disciples did not yet fully understand why Jesus came to earth. Friends, Jesus did not come to defeat and dethrone the Jewish elders, chief priests, and scribes. He came to suffer persecution and humiliation at their hands. Jesus did not come to conquer the Roman Empire and replace it with his eternal kingdom. Jesus came to conquer sin and death through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And Jesus begins to show his disciples the reason for his coming. Now, as you study the Gospels, you find that this is not the first time that Jesus mentioned the reason for his coming to earth. Numerous times throughout his ministry, Jesus spoke of his impending death and resurrection, saying that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, as well as declaring to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that if they destroyed this temple in three days, he would raise it up. Jesus constantly and consistently pointed to his death and his burial and his resurrection But all of these previous references to his work on earth were veiled to some degree. But Mark tells us in the parallel account of this passage, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 32, that from this point on, Jesus began to speak plainly about his death and his burial and his resurrection. And Matthew tells us that as Jesus spoke plainly about these events in his life, that he told his disciples in verse 20 that he must go to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, the heart and the power of the Jewish authorities, where the hostility against him would increase to the point of his death. Notice in the text that he showed his disciples that he must go. The word must is used by Jesus once in verse 21, but it is implied throughout the verse so that this thought from Jesus could literally be stated this way. The one you have just confessed as the son of the living God must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things and he must be killed and he must be raised. This must that Jesus spoke about was not a must of human devotion. It was the must of a divine imperative, the must of an absolute necessity. God had one plan and one plan only for his son. And it was the plan that must 
take him to Jerusalem. It was the plan that must include suffering. It was the plan that must include his death. And it was the plan that must end in his resurrection and ascension. And Jesus speaks plainly and clearly for the first time about all of these events in verse 21. Do you see it? He must go to Jerusalem. There is only one path that Jesus could take. It was the path that led to Jerusalem. Without this path, Jesus could not have become the Savior of the world. You see, it was God's plan that His Son, the Messiah, the Christ, would die for the sins of His people and that He would die in Jerusalem, the divinely ordered place of sacrifice, the place where millions upon millions of animal sacrifices were offered up to make people right with a holy God so that Jesus could be ushered in the final week of his life as they sang praises of Hosanna to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who as the writer of Hebrews would say and tell us and testify that this Christ, this Messiah, he would be the once for all sacrifice for the sins of the world. That in his one death, his one burial, in his one resurrection, he would split the curtain from top to bottom in one seamless tear and usher sinful people into the presence of a holy God and make them right with their God and their creator and their maker. And this could only take place in Jerusalem. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You know, Jesus understood this prophecy about himself, that he had to die in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a burden for Jesus. It was constantly, I would submit, on his mind. This is what Jesus said about Jerusalem himself in Luke chapter 13, verses 33 to 35. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus must go and die in Jerusalem. Notice also in verse 21 that Jesus must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. These three groups of religious leaders comprised the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, whose headquarters were located in Jerusalem. And at the hands of these religious leaders, Jesus would suffer many things. 
Notice thirdly in verse 21 that he must be killed. And notice carefully how Jesus describes what will happen to him. He must be killed. The Greek word that is used here does not describe a legal execution. Do you know what the word actually describes? Murder. Jesus was murdered by these religious leaders when he was nailed to that cross. He was not legally tried. He was not proven guilty of any wrongdoing. He was sentenced to death and murdered on false charges and accusations. That's why Peter would declare in Acts 2, through 23, that even though Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men, he was delivered up according to the foreknowledge and predestination of God the Father himself. He must be murdered. He must be executed. And notice finally in verse 21, Jesus must be raised on the third day. And you'll see in the text very, very clearly in a moment that the disciples were so consumed by the must of Jerusalem and the must of suffering and the must of murder that they missed the must of resurrection. That they were so blinded by all of the pain and the suffering and the hardship that Jesus would go through. The unbearableness of the thought of these realities that they missed the greatest must of them all. The promise of hope and resurrection in Jesus Christ himself. The must of triumph and the must of glory. And what I want you to see this morning in this prophecy, dear friends... These very words that are ushered from the lips of Jesus himself, that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means to follow Jesus Christ, is it means that you take the path that leads to the cross. That if Jesus' path led to the cross, what makes you think that you can bypass the cross and follow and serve Jesus in some other way. If Jesus himself went to the cross, you must go to the cross. We not only see in this path of discipleship the prophecy of Jesus, we see in verse 22 the rebuke of Peter. Peter, Peter, what are we going to do with him? Notice what the text says. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, are you following along in your Bible? And are you seeing that I am not making this up? The scripture actually says that Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. And it is apparent from his actions that Peter still did not grasp the divine purpose of Christ coming to earth, the purpose of his death. Peter's response to Jesus' prophecy makes it clear that not only he, but all of the disciples had not really heard and believed Jesus' words about being raised on the third day any more than they heard and believed the words that he spoke back in verse 18 when he said that he would build his church and, and the gates of hell 
would not prevail against it. Jesus had already declared to them and to you and me that death would never stop the building of his church and his people, not even his own death. And think about Peter and the disciples. Think about all that they had already been witness to. All of the miracles that they saw Jesus perform right in front of them. Even miracles of Jesus raising people from death to life. And yet, in spite of all of that evidence, in spite of Jesus' very own prophecy and words, they still didn't get it. And so Matthew says that Peter rebuked him. This word rebuke is an interesting word. It translates the same word used in verse 20 when Jesus charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This word rebuke carries the idea of authoritative judgment. And the form of the word that is used here suggests, listen carefully, that Peter rebuked Jesus repeatedly, over and over again. And Peter's response here in verse 22 explains why Jesus told them in verse 20 not to tell anyone about the purpose of his identity and his reason for coming. He didn't want them to tell them because he knew they still didn't understand why he came as evidenced by Peter's rebuke. Peter and the disciples were just like all the other people of Jesus' day. Suffering, hardship, death, and crucifixion did not fit their idea of the Messiah. The Messiah was to come and be a powerful political leader to overthrow the government and to establish a new earthly kingdom for Israel, a kingdom that would bring them freedom and independence. But the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in was a different kind of freedom, a freedom that could only be found through suffering, death, crucifixion, and resurrection. And so Peter, in verse 22, he not only rebukes Jesus repeatedly, look at the text. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This phrase translates a phrase that literally means gracious to you, merciful to you. And Peter was literally saying to Jesus, may God be gracious to you. May God in his mercy spare you. This suffering and this death and this crucifixion. And Peter was literally rebuking Jesus and saying, God forbid it, Jesus. This is not God's plan for your life. God does not want you to die like this. And I bet you missed something in the text. It's very subtle, but I bet you missed it. You know why I think you missed it? Because I missed it. Notice... What he says, in the midst of his rebuke, Peter still refers to Jesus as what? Lord. What? Peter is rebuking Jesus and telling him, God forbid that you suffer and die on the cross, Lord? 
Notice what he says next. This shall never happen to you, Jesus. How, friends, can you call Jesus Lord and in the very next sentence tell him never? He is either Lord or he isn't. And when you confess him as Lord, you lose the right to tell him never. He is either Lord or he is not. And Peter, full of confliction, calls him Lord, at the same time tells him, you'll never go to the cross. You'll never suffer. You'll never die. This isn't what God wants you to do. The audacity of Peter. And if you know much about Peter up to this point in the gospel, are you really surprised that Peter would think that he knows better than the Son of God himself? That Peter would put his earthly wisdom above God's divine wisdom? This is the man who just a few short verses earlier said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now he's saying to him, never will you die. And friends, if you don't feel the weight of this, follow Peter's logic through. If Jesus listened to Peter, Peter has no hope. He will die in his trespasses and sins unless Jesus goes to the cross. And so Peter is elevating his own wisdom above the wisdom of God. And it's a reminder to all of us this morning that human wisdom is always hostile to God's wisdom. Human wisdom is always inventing a path of discipleship a path of following God, a path of knowing Christ apart from the cross. And as long as human wisdom tries to bypass the cross, human wisdom will always be hostile to God's wisdom because God has chosen the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of the cross to save a people for himself. And this world cannot understand that. This world rejects that kind of wisdom. But there's good news. There's hope for Peter, just like there's hope for you and me because we're just like him. This man, this man who said, never, Lord, when he was restored by Christ, he became one of the most powerful preachers in the history of the church. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, this one who said, never, Lord, never will you go to the cross, said to the Sanhedrin, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builder which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in the very first book, The very first epistle that bears his name, 
Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Oh, don't be too quick to rebuke Peter this morning, friends. You have more in common with him than what you think. If all of us are honest this morning, we would all have to confess that there's a little bit of Peter that resides in every single one of us. How many times have we referred to Jesus as Lord and then turned around and told him never? How many times have you found yourself complaining about your trials and your sufferings and your difficulties How many times have you found yourself crying out to God asking, why me, Lord? And every time we question suffering, every time we question trials, every time we question hardship, we are taking on the personification of Peter. We are sharing in Peter's pride. We are saying to God, that I deserve nothing but blessing from you. I do not deserve hardship. I do not deserve suffering. I do not deserve sickness. All I deserve from you, God, is prosperity and blessing. And when we experience anything other than that and begin to question God, we in effect say, never, Lord. Never should I experience the cross. Never should I experience suffering. No, the path to discipleship is a path of the cross. It is a path of suffering. It is a path of denial. It is a path of hardship. It's not blessing. It's the cross then blessing. Well, we see the prophecy of Jesus in verse 21, the rebuke of Peter in verse 22, and in verse 23, we see the response of Jesus to all of this. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a change in conversation. Do you notice and remember back in verse 17? Jesus blessed Peter. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus gave a blessing to Peter. And now in verse 23, he is saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. What a contrast. This was a stinging, devastating response from Jesus to Peter that would have shaken Peter to his very core. That before Peter ever had a chance to finish his objections and his rebuke to Jesus, Jesus interrupted him, referred to him as Satan, his adversary. Peter went in a few short verses from being a God-inspired confessor to a Satan-inspired tempter. And do you know why Jesus said this to him? Get behind me, Satan. 
Because it's very similar to what Satan said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he tempted him in the wilderness. And after Jesus endured all of these wilderness temptations, he spoke a similar phrase to Satan himself. Through all of these temptations in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to divert Jesus from the cross. Satan tried to get Jesus to take a path other than the cross to receive the kingdom and to receive the glory. And now here in this very passage before our eyes, Satan is voicing the same temptations through Peter. Peter is saying, Jesus, there's another way than the cross. Jesus, the cross, it's too hard for you. It's too difficult for your life. Jesus, if you'll just take this other path, if you'll just take this other road, It'll be much better for you. Jesus, my way is better than yours. Jesus, my way is better than God's. And in this moment, listen carefully to me, friends. Peter found himself opposing God. He found himself in opposition to God. And Jesus said, Look at verse 23, you're a hindrance to me. Literally, you're a stumbling block to me. You are trying to tempt me. You are trying to trip me up and cause me to stumble. You are a hindrance, Peter. You're a hindrance because you're thinking through the eyes of man and not through the eyes of God. Peter, you've set your mind on earthly things, not on godly things. And friends, if you study the Gospels, you understand the significance of this passage of Scripture. This temptation was real. Before Jesus went to the cross in the garden when he was praying to his Father, he sweat drops of blood and prayed, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Jesus understood what he was facing. He understood that when he hung on that cross, every sin of the world would be placed upon him. And that in that moment when he bore the weight of the sin of the world, his heavenly Father, whom he was in perfect union with, would turn away from his son. And when he turned away from his son, he would unleash his full wrath for sin. Then in that very moment, the very holiness of what it means for God to be God would be unleashed on his beloved son. And Jesus knew. He knew what he would experience. In that moment, and he cried out to his father, if there's another way, remove this cup from me. But there was no other way. Jesus had come to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath 
for sin. And the only way he could do that was through the work of the cross. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be murdered. And he must be raised from the grave. And he must come again. This is the path to discipleship. It is a path that begins, centers, and ends in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's too many people, listen to me carefully this morning, there are too many people in the church and outside of the church who think like Peter and ultimately think like Satan. They have embraced a view of Christ that is not compatible with the Bible. And their belief in God, their belief in Christ, can all be summed up in one phrase. Do you know what it is? My God is not like that. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you ever found yourself saying a phrase similar to that? Can I help you this morning? If you've said that phrase, you're absolutely right. Your God that you've made in your own image, out of your own ideals, out of your own mind, is not like the God of the Bible. You are absolutely right. And you are also right in the fact that your God that you have made will leave you empty at the end of your days. Your God says that you can go to heaven apart from Christ as long as you're sincere in whatever you believe. Your God says that God is too hard. God is too judgmental. God is too unkind. The God of the Bible says that He is a God of love and that He loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you that no greater love than this can be displayed than that a man would die for others. That is the God of the Bible. And you think that your God is a God of love when in reality your God is not a God of love. Because your God that you've made out of your own ideas and images doesn't tell you the truth. It tells you what you want to hear. But the God of the Bible speaks truth. And his truth is life. And his truth says that if you want to follow him, if you want to know him, you must begin at the cross. You cannot bypass the cross of Jesus Christ and call yourself a Christian. You cannot bypass the cross of Jesus Christ and call yourself a disciple. 
you cannot bypass the cross and say that you are following Jesus. You are just like Peter in that moment. You are saying, Lord, and never. No, the path of discipleship begins in the cross. And if you're a true believer today, your life as a believer doesn't just begin at the cross. It continues and ends in the cross. Because if you've read the rest of the passage this morning, Jesus will say, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Oh, friends, don't be deceived today. There are too many churches that are telling you that you can go to heaven some other way than through the cross of Christ. I'm telling you this morning that that's not true. I'm telling you this morning that the Bible says that that is not true. There are too many Christians who have embraced cheap grace when Jesus teaches that it's costly grace to follow him. And I pray that if you've been deceived by these false ideologies, that this passage of Scripture will correct your thinking and turn you back to the cross. Because it is in the cross of Christ where we find our life and our hope and our ultimate satisfaction. Let's pray.